Mark again this morning, chapter 2. We'll be focusing on verses 18 through 22, but I would like to begin in verse 15 and read through 22 to set the scene that Mark presents for us. And it came about that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax gatherers and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax gatherers, they began saying to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast, do they? So long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it the new one from the old, and the worst tear results. And no one puts, a, puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come once again this morning as disciples and those who desired to, to know you did long ago, we would see Jesus. And so we ask that you would show him to us, that we might see him, we might understand these things, we might meditate on these things, and we might learn of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, learn of him and learn to worship him in spirit and truth. We ask that you would do these things in the building up of your church to your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Mark has shown us lots of different scenes of, of Jesus. And as one of uh, our brothers said a few weeks ago, that when Mark uses the word immediately, we, we tend to read that way. We want to read and just move on and move on. And, and we forget how much is packed so tightly in Mark. We, we, we see that in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the people uh, who were responding were, were those who, who seemed to understand or, or at least appreciate who Jesus was. They, they, they were amazed at his teaching, saying things like, you know, new teaching with authority. He, he, he even commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. And as he goes on, he meets uh, people who come to him by faith. Uh, the leper who comes, and, you know, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And, and Jesus reveals that part of himself, that, that he has the divine will when he reaches out and he says, I will. And we then began to see a little bit of opposition coming up, that, that there were not all people who were amazed and who were following him, who were seeking him out in order to 
be healed or have him heal their loved ones, we start to hear and we hear it as a silence when those sitting in the house with Jesus, when the paralytic is lowered down through the roof, he hears in his heart them saying, why, why does this man speak this way? Why does he blaspheme thinking that he can forgive sins? And Jesus responds without even hearing their audible voice. He responds, in order that you may know that the Son of Man can forgive sins, I say to the paralytic, rise, take up your pallet and go home. But then we encountered this situation with Levi and his fellow tax gatherers, his fellow sinners in his house when he gave a banquet for them. That now they're getting a little more bold. They don't speak to Jesus directly. They come to his disciples in order to question them about Jesus. Trying to understand, I think, in one sense, who this man is, but really in their hearts thinking, we can't have this man around. And Jesus, again, overhears them and says it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And now, and again, I believe in Mark, the reason that these episodes are back to back, it is possible, it is very possible, that this day of this banquet that Levi gave for Jesus and his disciples and his Levi's friends happened on a day that was a Jewish fast day. It doesn't have to be that. It can simply be, as we read it, that, that John's disciples were, were fasting and the Pharisees uh, were fasting and they could see that, well, in those days, you know, Jesus' disciples do not fast. But, but doesn't it seem plausible here that immediately Mark brings us into a situation where they are seeing Jesus and his disciples not fasting at all on a day that was set aside for fasting? And you all know what, what fasting is. We, we, call, we have a word, break fast, breakfast, right? You break the fast. It just simply means that you have abstained from eating food for a period of time. That, that's what fasting means in its basic definition. But for the Jews, it was weekly. There was a day set aside to fast. Perhaps looking back at Leviticus, at the Day of Atonement, they were, uh, at least that's where I can find explicitly, it says that they should be fasting and offering themselves in humility before the Lord with their sacrifices before the altar. But by Jesus' day, fasting had become something that was required to do. Fasting not only meant one day for many of the Pharisees and rabbis, but they fasted on two days of the week, the second day of the week and the fifth day of the week, which meant that they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. And I had to look it up, why Mondays and Thursdays, according to uh, the tradition, that when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the second set of tablets. Remember, he smashed the first set of tablets from God. He went to receive the second tablets. He went up on a Thursday and he came down on a Monday and that's why they fasted on Monday and Thursday. But what was it all about? 
Well, it, it had two sides. The, the fasting had a positive side because it was usually in conjunction with prayers and almsgiving. That's when they did their charitable giving. So there was that positive side, but the negative side was as a self-punishment and, and a mortification uh, to avert the anger of God and to hopefully prevent further calamities. For the rabbis, it was meritorious in three ways as an expression of mourning and humiliation for sin, as a sacrifice to God greater than the sacrifices of the altar, so it would be greater than what they would do on the Day of Atonement, but it was also a means of preventing other sins. The, the language, and you've probably read this phrase, of keeping under the body. It was a, a way of chastening their own body. And so they come to Jesus, and I believe John's disciples and the Pharisees um, came together. It's kind of this strange mix, you might think, that this group of men kind of banded together, and somebody put forth the question to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And I don't know whether the Pharisees had an agenda and John's disciples had their own agenda. Perhaps the Pharisees were trying to win over John's disciples to their side and kind of take them aside and say, well, you know, this man, Jesus, is not really who you think he is or who you're wondering he is, or maybe they wanted to produce a quarrel between John's disciples and Jesus' disciples. They wanted to kind of try to divide Jesus' ministry. But I think John's disciples and history uh, teaches us or helps us understand that there were groups of John's disciples who continued on as disciples of John even after John was killed that at this time when we meet them, John is in prison. And they're trying, to, I think there is a genuine desire to know. John has taught us that we ought to fast, but Jesus isn't teaching his disciples to fast. So I believe they come with an earnest question, at least John's disciples. But here they ask the question, why? Why do Jesus' disciples not fast. And notice that this time, for the first time that I can understand in Mark, they are addressing Jesus himself and speaking and pointing and accusing perhaps Jesus' own disciples. So the opposition is getting a little more bold, but Jesus is still Jesus. Jesus answers in a way with, with, with really an answer that they, they knew the answer to the question. And he draws the only conclusion that can possibly be drawn in this situation. For the Jews, the marriage week was literally a marriage week of seven days. The attendance, the bridegroom's attendance that Jesus mentions in verse uh, 19, the, the sons of the bride chamber in some of your versions. Those were the people who went with the bride and groom to the groom's house. After the wedding, they went and they spent a week celebrating with them. 
They were to basically make mirth, to, to, to just celebrate and enjoy each other, and joy being with the bride and the bridegroom. And there was much feasting, and there would be eating and drinking. And there was even, even among those who followed the, the strict code of the Talmud, there was absolution for them during that marriage week. They, they would not, for example, be held as a sin if they didn't pray or if they didn't fast during that week. In short, it was the religious duty of the bridegroom's attendants to rejoice. <laughs> they were to rejoice with the bride and groom. It's a little bit foreign for our culture. When, when a couple gets married in our culture, they disappear for a week. Here they were to, to have the whole wedding party essentially with them for a week. And there again, it was the religious duty, even written, even that the rabbis and the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees would know, it, it was a religious duty to rejoice with them. But they asked the question of Jesus, why do your disciples not fast? And Jesus' answer is, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast, do they? So long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. It is their religious duty not to fast, but to eat and drink and be merry with them. Do the attendants of the bridegroom fast, he asks? No, they don't. Indeed, he says, they can't because the bridegroom is here and they are rejoicing. It's as if Jesus turned to them and said, my disciples do not fast because they're not sad. <laughs> A wedding is not for mourning. It's incongruous. It's not what happens. You know this in your own culture. This is not what happens on the wedding week. They do not fast because it is their duty to rejoice because the bridegroom is here. Again, we have heard Jesus say these things. He, he says them short and, and kind of pithy and, and kind of veiled. But what you see when he says, I will, when you see him call himself, I am the son of man and I have authority to forgive sins. You see him when he says, those who are sick need a physician. He is speaking of himself. And here, can there be any mistake in the Pharisees or John's disciples or anyone else listening to him? Jesus says, I am the bridegroom. And while I am here, there will be much rejoicing. Jesus, I think, was speaking to John's disciples primarily. I think he would invite them, well, what did your own leader say? What did John the Baptist say about me? Remember, and he couldn't point to John 3 yet, but we would point to John 3. And what would, did John say? He who has the bridegroom, bride is the bridegroom. 
But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this voice, uh, joy of mine, has been made full. John says the bridegroom is here. And we know shortly after that, John says, I must decrease, but he must increase. The bridegroom is here. I, I was just the herald of the bridegroom. Now it's time for me to step into the background and enter into the joy of the bridegroom. He recognized who Jesus was, and I think Jesus was saying, you need to put those things together, guys. This is how John saw me, he says. And now you see those around me, that's how they see me. The bridegroom is here. And again, he's shaking the foundations of the things that were tradition, the things that they formerly believed. When the Old Testament speaks of this idea of, of marriage, of husband and wife, we, we see it throughout the Old Testament. You see it perhaps most clearly in Hosea. But, but the idea of the marriage bond, Jehovah and his people. And in Hosea, when, when he's trying to, through Hosea and that whole thing with, with his wife and her infidelity and all the things, and he says that, behold, it will come about in that day when you will call me Ishi, which means my husband. See, God is in the place of the husband and his people in the place of the bride. And what is Jesus doing? He's placing himself right there and saying, yeah, these things that were written are about me. I am the bridegroom. My people are the bride. Or Isaiah 54. Isaiah writes this language of, of the Lord speaking to him. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And he goes on to enumerate all of these things. You will not be put to shame. You, you will be raised up. You will forget your former life and you will be taken care of. There, there is a great theme in the Old Testament of, of the bride meeting her bridegroom. And that bridegroom is God. And Jesus places himself squarely there. And he says, the bridegroom is with you. And the focus of the attendants of the bridegroom, have, they have one duty. Rejoice. Their joy in his presence was their one task. And that's what's so incongruous here, is they knew these things. They could see these things. And, and yet, when Jesus just brought it in plain language, I think they must have been stunned. But in, just in case they didn't get it, he goes on with two, uh, some people call them um, compact parables. We, we haven't really reach the, the point where Jesus is speaking a lot in parable or in, in, the, in the book of Mark. But there's these, these principles that Jesus uses to flesh out what he has just told them. And I don't know, I'd have to ask my Greek professor, is there, is there something for these little like one verse parables? I mean, is there a word like a parabolette? Um, but that's what they are. Verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it and the new from the old and a worse tear results. Again, they, they wouldn't know this in their culture. Notice Jesus says, no one does this thing. 
this is not a demeaning statement, but, but anybody, even, even the maids, right? Even, even somebody who has to do the mending in your family would know these things. The old forms and new conceptions, they're, they just don't meet. New conceptions of old truth will tear the old cloth. What is he speaking of? He's speaking of new cloth, something that is different from the old cloth. And usually, and the, the word in the back of this is unfullered. It, it has never been washed. It's, it's, it's unshrunk cloth. And, and they would sew it on to that patch. And what does Jesus say? Well, the, the new cloth is stronger than the old cloth, so as soon as you start to flex it and you wear it, it's going to tear the old cloth and make an even bigger hole. And so what you're trying to do is put new cloth, unshrunk cloth, on old cloth, and it's not going to work. Or what about the wine? In verse 22, and no one, again, no one does this, puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost. See, he takes the first parable and now he expands on it in the second parable. Not only will it burst the skins, but what gets spilled on the ground? The wine is lost. See, there's two things happening there. This effervescence of this new wine is going to burst that old wineskin and it's useless now, but you've wasted all the wine. John's disciples, and I believe again, I think he's speaking to them and the Pharisees, I think are just, I, I would think they would be quaking in their boots at this point, but he's pointing to John's disciples and he's saying to him, you cannot keep Christianity in the old forms of Judaism. You cannot keep this new thing that is happening to you and has happened to you in the old formalism of Judaism. Going through those motions, doing it in a cold, lifeless manner, you cannot do it. I can't help but think, Jesus is, is speaking in the context of a wedding feast. And we know from scriptures, and I, I don't want to push the parable beyond what it's supposed to do, but I cannot help but think. When we think of the wedding feast in the Bible, there are two things. That you have to have the right clothes on, and you celebrate and rejoice with wine with the bride and the bridegroom. And they, they have the wine of gladness and joy with it, and, and we see those things. And I just, I, it's like you, the cloth, the old cloth, what does it represent? It, it's an old robe, and you're trying to put this new thing on it. You, you, you can't retain the old garment by just trying to patch the old one with a new patch. Put on a new robe. Doesn't Jesus say elsewhere, unless you have the right Wedding clothes, you're not going to be invited in to the wedding. You cannot retain an old robe by merely applying a new piece of cloth. A little of the new is worse than useless to preserve the old. Put on the new robe. Put on the righteousness of Christ. 
The new wine of the Spirit must have a corresponding vessel. I, I would go back to John 3. You must be born again. You, you must be changed. You, you must be a new creature, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Behold, the old things are done away. The new has come. Unless that new comes, you can't patch up the old and make yourself presentable to God. You must be changed. You must be that new wineskin because you're putting in the new wine. This is different. This is glorious. The glorious doctrine of grace and faith is ruined by the formalism, by a works righteousness for the old, cold, unbending rituals. But sadly, many in our day misapply these. Perhaps they've listened to that comedian on the radio who says, the New Testament is pretty old. They think that the old, the teachings of Jesus are the old, and they must be replaced with some new teaching, that it calls for some in our day, you know, we've got a different society, we've got different mores, and, and so we, we need new conceptions of sin. Or, or, or there's, yeah, there's a new morality now. Well, the truth that Jesus taught is still the truth. And in that new morality is the old immorality just with a new name. Sin is still sin. It's still aberrant to God. I mean, we, we, we read, and I, I was thinking about it as our brother Neil was reading from Lamentations. All of those things that God pro brought upon the people, and I could hear people around me going, oh, oh. The, the, there is a reason for those lamentations, all the things happening to them. But a holy God must punish sin. There, there, there is a punishment for sin because he is a holy and just God. And so, as one of the writers that I read said, for Christians, we must not have a, quote, conscience, conscious make-believe about these things. These outer forms of worship must conform to the change of the inner man. The worshiper must worship in spirit and truth, John 4. But also the outward form of our religion ought to correspond to the inner disposition of the worshiper. Christ is not condemning fasting here. Remember in John or Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, when you fast, don't let anybody around you know that you are fasting. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. If you are mourning over sin and you're in humiliation over sin, that's what fasting is for. And that is what you ought to do. But he is saying the cold, unbending, rigid formalism of the Pharisees is of no value to the practitioner. To fast or not to fast depends on the condition in which we find ourselves. When we are struck by the Lord with our sin and we are understanding of what we have done, yes, we fast. We, we get on our knees, we go in our prayer closet, we pray. We, we ask for forgiveness and we seek him. 
But not only must we understand what we do and why we do it, we must also make it vital. Christianity ought to be something living and abiding. There are times when we, I think, and I speak to myself, I told my wife this morning, I said, I don't need to go to church this morning. I'm not ready to go to church this morning. I need to go stand in front of a mirror and preach to that guy who stares back at me. There, there is, I think, in us, in me, that sometimes Christianity becomes somewhat make-believe. Well, I, I don't see Christ. Right? I didn't get to live when the disciples did, to see him in the flesh. But I think Jesus, when he speaks to the Pharisees and to, to John's disciples here, I, I, I think he's, he's doing two things at once that we all need to hear. I had to look this word up, but one of the commentators said, Jesus is iconoclastic. And, and you know what the word icon is? Or those of you who do the little the things, it's it, 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 symbols that stand for things. And toward the Pharisees, he, he did this. He attacked or ignored their cherished beliefs and long-standing traditions because he knew they held them in error and misunderstanding. And he had to attack that. He had to attack that formalism. But, but to John's disciples, I think he became the apologist. He looked toward them, and what he's arguing and what he's doing is defending or justifying his policy. It is the policy of his disciples. And we see that when he says, the bridegroom is here. They can't fast. They must rejoice. So all that Jesus claims for himself is what the Old Testament says about Jehovah as the husband of his people. And by doing that, we open up all of the scripture where we, and I can think of them in no other way. These are Jesus' vows to us. He promises to love us. He promises to lead us and guide us and protect us as his bride. He claims that his bride can have a quiet confidence and total reliance upon him to protect her. He assures us that he has a righteous and strong right hand, that he has a loving heart, that he has a faithful will. Not only just for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, and then we, what do we do? We go on to the and death, until death do us part. But what does Jesus say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. At the end of Matthew, he says, Behold, I am with you always. That is Jesus' wedding vow to his people. I will never leave you or forsake you. Or to his disciples in John chapter 16. Jesus, for the first time in, in Mark, he's given us that little verse, that little hint of what is about to come. It, it, Mark has packed so much in there. I'm going to get to John 16 in a moment. But in verse 20, he says, But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And I don't know about you, I'm a pretty simple person. 
I think they were without Christ for three days. And parts of Friday, a Saturday, and then that great Easter morning, first Easter morning. I, I think it was only about three days that he was gone. But what does Jesus tell them in the midst of his, his high, his talk to his disciples in the upper room discourse before that event? He speaks to them about, it is necessary that I go away. It's to your advantage because the Holy Spirit is going to come. And he's going to be with you. And he's going to reveal me to you. But listen to these. He says, a little while and you will no longer behold me. Again, a little while you will see me. He's saying, I'm going to go away to the Father, but it'll be a little while. But the Holy Spirit is going to come. And this is what he, he says to them. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. When a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for that joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, he says, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice and no one takes your joy away from you. Jesus is the bridegroom. He is here. The, the question is this, do we have this conscious make-believe or do we believe that Jesus is here? Do we daily realize his presence, the presence of our Lord and Savior? Do we feel his nearness when we're at play, when we're at work, when we're by ourselves? Do we desire to be with him? Do you meditate and reflect on his work, his power, his word and promise to us. And do we trust him utterly without regret? Is there satisfy, satisfaction in knowing that he is at work in you? Our brother, I think, said it about Job, but I believe that he meant it about us too. God in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is never not here. And if that is true, then do we not read Jesus' question in a little bit different light? While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast, do they? My disciples do not fast because they're not sad. They're doing the religious requirement. They are rejoicing. It may seem like we are consigned to worship an unseen God, an absent Christ. But Christ sits at the right hand of power on high. And what does that mean? It means he's active. Where the divine will is active, Jesus is active. Where the divine will is in power, he is in power. He is active, he is wielding, wielding divine power. He still holds all things together. He's still present in this world and he is acting with his power. One writer wrote, we have lost the manifestation of him to sense, but we have gained the manifestation of him in spirit. 
He went away so that he might send his Holy Spirit to us. But he is still present with us in the Spirit. So do we take this idea of rejoicing in his presence seriously? Is he the object of our joy? The object of our love? He is the personification of 1 Corinthians 13. His love never fails. His love never comes to an end. His love never disappoints. His love never gives up. His love has no limits. His love doesn't grow cold. It doesn't change. Therefore, we ought to live with never-ending joy. Will days of mourning come to us? Yes, they will. But what is the difference between us and those who don't know Christ? He's still present with us. In fact, I believe that it, we would all be in our mourning, in our grief, in the things that happen to us. We would be, as one writer says, absorbed in our whole nature. We, we would be overwhelmed by the things of this world, the things that come across, uh, uh, to us and to our families. And sometimes the sorrow will be the occasion of full revelation to our hearts that Jesus is present. Our joy should be like the joy of Mary. She sat at Jesus' feet and learned of him. Our joy should be like John, the disciple that is written of in the scriptures who, who wanted so eagerly to be with Jesus that he would, he would be reclining at table right next to him and put his head on his shoulder. We ought to have the joy of Peter who when after they thought that Jesus was gone from them, spied him from the boat and his joy led him to put on his clothes and then spring into the sea. It ought to be that kind of joy. In Christ, there is a strange blend, I think, of, of hope. Hope of salvation, and yet we're called to bear fruit. There, there's a watching, and there's a feasting. There, there's a, a time of revelation, and a time when we are told that we are to love him whom we have not seen. When Paul writes to the Philippians... He writes a verse that is familiar to all of us. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. But two verses later, he writes, be anxious for nothing. You see, he puts those things together. The reality of the Christian life is that we live a life where there will be things that happen to us and we go, man, this is not good. And yet... In the midst of these things, we can rejoice. As Neil was reading, there was that passage in Lamentations where it talks about from the depths of the pit that he cried. And I, I was thinking immediately of the author of, of, the, of the book. Um, I can't remember her book, but her name is Corrie Ten Boom. And she wrote about the times that she was in the Nazi concentration camps. Her father died in those camps. Her sister died in the same camp that she was in. And she had the humiliation, and she was 
persecuted for trying to help others, and she had the depths of despair, and yet she said to others, no pit is so deep that God is not deeper still. The command that Paul gives, and it is a command, Paul gives us a command, it is imperative. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Our bridegroom is with us. Rejoice in the bridegroom always. And again I say rejoice. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us to see Jesus. Help us to know Him. Help us to desire this joy, not just for ourselves, but those around us as we participate together in this Christian life. As we go through our day, Father, bring these things to our attention. As we struggle with things because we are fickle and we are sinners, help us to rejoice because the bridegroom is near. His love never fails. He will never not be there. And so we ask that we would rejoice in these things, that we would enjoy them in this life. And we ask that you would use these things in us mightily to build your church, to build this congregation, that we might serve and honor you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.